At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. I invite you to join in with me in Psalm 103. Uh, we're going to take a pause this morning from the series we've been in in the book of Revelation. And since it's Father's Day, take a just special time to reflect on God and his, uh, and his fatherhood this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Psalm 103. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses together. Um, and so I think one of the more prophetic songs that has probably been written in the last 20 years or so about fatherhood is uh, the song Daughters off John Mayer's second album, Heavier Things. In the back half of that album, uh, and, and in that song particularly, John Mayer writes almost a lament. Um, it's in his kind of poppy, soft rock style, but it really is a lament. He sings in that song about being with uh, a woman who's been profoundly affected by the absence of her father and where that's left her and the way it's affected her in their relationship. And so he cries out kind of in the repeated chorus, fathers, be good to your daughters, recognizing kind of the effect that fathers can have on on daughters. But towards the end of the song, he kind of he gives a, a recognition or an invitation that I think is really fascinating. He, he notes right kind of towards the end in one part, he says, on behalf of every man looking out for every girl, you are the God and the weight of her world. That's an interesting line to think about when it comes to fathers, that you are the God and the weight of the, her world. But I think Mayer, I don't know his spirituality personally, I think he puts his finger on something that's actually pretty profound in the way God has designed the world to be. That there's a certain weight and significance to fatherhood that shapes all of us, not just daughters, but sons as well. And that in many ways, fathers affect how we view and relate to God himself as our heavenly fathers. They were designed this way. They were designed with this certain weight that they were to bring to help point us towards the truth and reality of who God is. However, it's kind of precisely at that point that a problem kind of enters all of our reality. Because the fact is that not one of us, not a single person in this room, has had a father who's actually lived up to that calling, my children included, right? All fathers on some level, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our fallenness, have fallen short of reflecting the true nature and character of our heavenly fathers. And they've left us affected, all of us, with a lens that's distorted from how it was originally designed to be. So some of us have that more than others. Some of us carry deeper pain than others when it comes to our fathers. Some of us have never known our fathers or maybe have only known them for a short time. Some of us had abusive or unsafe fathers. Some had emotionally distant fathers. Some of us have surrogate fathers, stepfathers, or father-like figures. Some of us have had great fathers. And on a day like today, we recognize that. And yet... Even then, we must recognize that even the best dad has fallen short of the calling to perfectly reflect our heavenly father. 
And here's my point in saying this, right? It's not to bash dads on Father's Day. It's only to recognize that because of the reality of our fallenness, our view of fatherhood has been distorted in some way. And because of that, it actually impacts then our understanding and relating to God. And what happens is, if we don't take time to actually engage and recognize who God is in the Father that he's revealed himself to be, then what we often do is we fashion our image of God either out of who our Father was or who we wished our Father to be. But either one of those doesn't actually put us in the position of recognizing who God is in his reality as our heavenly father. But if, what if we could begin to learn, learn to relate to God as our father out of his reality, not our distorted lenses, but who he actually is? This is where God's word becomes immensely helpful because it is the way God has chosen to reveal who he is in all that he is, and even more so as our heavenly father to us. Therefore, scripture is actually meant to be the lens that helps us relate to God as our father, to see who he is, to see what he does, to see his character and what he is like towards us. Now, we don't have time today to exhaustively look at all of what scripture has to say about God being our heavenly father. But what I want to invite us into is to look at this one psalm, Psalm 103, which I think in many ways gives us an incredible picture of the fatherhood of God and can help us begin to put on the right lenses and see more fully the reality of who God is as our father. So we're just going to unpack these 18 verses together and we're kind of going to explore a little bit of the fatherhood of God this morning. Psalm 103 is written by David King of Israel, also a great poet and musician. And he begins the psalm with these words, verse one, bless Yahweh, O my soul. Some of your translations might say bless the Lord, but when you see the Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, that's a sign of God's covenant name, the name he gave to the nation of Israel. It's four letters originally in the Hebrew, yod heh vod most Scholars believe that would be translated as Yahweh, and I will read it as such because I think it's helpful for you to hear the covenantal language that God uses towards his people in this passage. So he says, bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David begins this psalm not with a call to heaven, not with a call to the earth, not with a call to creation, but to his very own being, to bless God. That word he uses, oh my soul, too often in the West we think of that as kind of the immaterial part of us, our spiritual reality. But in the Hebrew thought, that word soul, the Hebrew word is nephesh, it was actually a reference to the entire being. It's, it's, a, it's a recognition of all that we are. So the call to bless God here is a blessing. Say, my whole being, all that I am, body, soul, and spirit, all of it together, bless God. And so for whatever reason, we're not entirely sure all the background to why David and what David has been through to lead him to this point. But what we know in this moment is that he's calling to his soul to bless God. Why? Well, he says in verse 2, to not forget all of his benefits or his kind actions towards him. 
This psalm is one of remembering in which David is remembering the reality of God because remembering is a great act of worship. When we remember, we take time to set our gaze off ourselves to remove us from the center of our world and to put God in his rightful place and who he is in our world. But that's also kind of the reason why we don't always like to remember. Because remember is an act of surrender. It's an act of humility and putting God in his rightful place. Dr. Dan Allender, in his book, Redeeming Heartache, wrestles with this reality. He discusses in that book the truth and reality that all of us carry heartache, that all of us were designed originally, created to exist in perfect harmony with God, with one another, and with the world. Yet because of sin, we live what he refers to as east of Eden, out of the garden, not in the state where we're created for. And because of that, we all carry wounds and heartaches from our families, from our lives, from our pain, and from our suffering. And because of that, we build up in our lives, certain ways of operating that put us at the center of our existence. The invitation then to remember can often be a challenging one because it actually forces us to deal with some of those heartaches and to put God back at the center. In fact, he notes at one point in that book, he says this, why are we reminded in the scripture time and again not to forget? Is it because we so often misplace keys and forget birthdays? Or is it a much darker reality than the mental strain of multitasking or the deficits of, of aging and memory? I posit that we refuse to remember because remembering disrupts our illusion of control. We prefer our delusion. That way we are far from death. And I think he's on to something there. I think it's one of the key things of how we struggle sometimes in how we actually relate and understand who God is as our heavenly father. Because to truly remember God as our father means we have to remove ourselves from the center. We have to remove ourselves from control. We have to remove ourselves as God. And we have to recognize who he is as God and then derive our understanding of who he is as our father from that place. But that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. He's taking time to remember, to call to himself. Don't forget the benefits of God. Don't forget what he has done. Don't forget his reality. And I think in calling himself to remember and inviting us to remember, there's two things that he invites us to remember about God as our father today. The first thing he invites us towards is to remember God's fatherly actions. Look, look what he says in verse 3, right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. David begins to remember, first and foremost, God's benefits by reminding himself of God's divine actions towards his children. He recounts five things that God does in this passage. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. Now, before we unpack those things together, I first think we should note one thing, which is how David would characterize his life prior to God's actions and interventions towards it. Right? To recognize that God has done these things for him is to recognize where he was prior to those things. And if you look at the five realities that he claims, you get a 
picture of how he recognized who he was before God intervened into his life. And it's really the opposite of the ideas of what he says. That prior to God's intervention, he was sinful, diseased, in the pit of death, devoid of love and mercy, and unsatisfied. If you were to summarize that in a word, you would say that he was unredeemed. Yet here, he's reminding himself that out of his unredemption, God has moved in an act of redemption. But I think it's important for us to recognize, if we're to see God rightly and to remember his fatherly actions, the starting point is actually to remember where we were apart from his intervention in our lives. Because it's then that we have the correct lens on both ourselves and who God is and how he operates towards us. What is our reality apart from God? Well, we are unredeemed without his intervention and actions towards us. Sometimes to remember who God is as father and to remember his benefits, we need to remind ourselves who we would be and where we would be without him. All children need this reminder from time to time, don't they? I mean, in my journey of fathering with my own children, there are some times where my kids forget the benefits that I bring to them as their father and what their mother brings to them as their mother. And usually when that happens, there's usually some sort of conversation that happens between us. We'll put it gently, right? Where they forget all that it means that they're my children and what benefits they have been provided for by their children. So you come to your kid and you say, hey, can you help pick up the dishes after dinner? And they're like, uh, do I have to? I'm like, well, do you want to eat tonight, right? Like, did you forget who you are? This is where I think that great dad line comes out. Like, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of this world, right? Like, it's that reminder of, hey, 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 hey. Don't forget the nature of the relationship here. Don't forget what it means. Not only that I gave you life, not only that I was intricate. I mean, my wife played a much more significant role than I did, but either way, like I was intricate in you bringing life. But don't forget the benefits that come from being my child. Don't forget that the house you live in, the heat that you enjoy, the food that magically shows up on your table, like these things are out of the benefit of who you are as my child and who, you, who I am as your father. If this was not so, you would not enjoy these benefits. Now, unfortunately, as children, we can forget of God. We can forget that same reality. Remember, apart from him, where would we be? I mean, David would say it. We're stuck in our sin. We're diseased. We're in the pit of death and hell separated from God. We're not crowned with love. We're not satisfied. And yet, God has moved that way towards us. So recognizing our reality apart from God helps us then recognize his reality and how he moves towards us as our father. Part of the way we get off course in our experience of God as father is when we forget the reality, our reality apart from him. But when we see ourselves rightly, in our fallenness and sinfulness, then we begin to put on the lens rightly of God's fatherly actions towards us. And that's what he does here. So he reminds us of this reality. How does God move towards us in action? He forgives our sin. The language here is a, the language of a king pardoning a subject, that he's choosing not to enact judgment and punishment, but instead is offering forgiveness. He heals all your diseases. God is the one who brings. He, he has the lens here of physical healing. Now remember, when scripture talks about healing, it deals with it, and most things, it deals with it in the eternal reality as well as the temporal, which means not all healing is experienced in the temporary, but in the eternal, God brings healing to all things. 
right? And so that's his lens. He's reminding himself, how does God move? Yes, some of us experience healing now. Even the ability that our physical bodies have to heal is a gift of God. But yet, there's also the lens that God will bring full healing to our bodies in the resurrection to come. He redeems your life from the pit. The pit is a metaphor for the grave and all that is associated with it. That God redeems us from that place of darkness, death, separation from him. But not only does he save us from what could be, he also provides for us, right? He crowns you with steadfast or loyal love and mercy. This is what he covers you with and gives to you. And he satisfies you with good so that you're renewed like the eagle, right? A symbol in the Old Testament of life and vigor and freedom. That this is your reality, because of God's intervention towards you. If, if you were to sum up those works, those actions in one word, you would say God works and acts towards his people in redemption. He takes them from, from the place of being unredeemed and he brings them into the place of redemption. And that's significant. That's where God's starting point for who he is as a father begins in his redemption of bringing us from the place of being outside of his covenant family being outside of relationship with him into the place of being in relationship with him. This is why one of the great images that the New Testament use of those who have come to know God through Christ is the language and image of adoption. Because adoption is that work in which someone who is not a part of a family is brought into a family. And where does the work of adoption ultimately originate and begin? It begins in the heart of the parent. No matter how much a child might want to be adopted, it's not until the action of the parent to step towards adoption that that child is brought into the family. And ultimately, our earthly adoptions that we see and experience now are rooted even more deeper in the spiritual reality of the way God adopts his people in what he did towards Israel and what he does now for us who are in Christ Jesus. God takes people who are outside of his family and he works by his grace in Jesus to forgive their sin, to rescue them from that place, and to bring them into his family, to make them and adopt them as his own. The fatherhood of God begins in his act towards us. So don't forget who you are apart from him in your unredemption, because that will then help you see, wow, how incredible of a father is God that he would take me from this place and he would bring me to make me his own, to be a father towards me. And so he reminds them, remember God's fatherly actions. But even as he remembers God's fatherly actions, even as he calls praise for God for how he moves towards us in that, he then moves to remember God's gracious, loving, fatherly character. To continually rehearse not only what God has done in bringing him to his family, but the way God now in his character actually positions himself towards us who are in his family. And he highlights some incredible things about the reality of God in these verses. Look at verse 6. Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Here, David's looking back at the key moment in Israel's history in the rescue that God works in rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into his covenant promised land. And he looks and says, man, God is amazing. He's a God of justice and righteousness. He takes us from that place and he brings us into the place of promise. Look at his character. 
And he's reminding himself that God, by default, is just in his actions and righteous in what he does. And then he quotes what might, I think in many ways, might be the most important verse in the whole psalm. Verse 8, Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here, the psalmist remembers God's self-revelation of who he is and the nature of his character towards his people. This is quoted from a quote, direct quote from Exodus 34. And let me remind you what happened in that story. God rescues Israel out of Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai to form his covenant with them. And he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And then he takes Moses up on the mountain to complete the covenant work that Moses is going to bring. And while Moses is up on the mountain, do the people stay committed and worshiping God? No. No, they freak out, they form a calf, and they start to worship this golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain and is like, what the heck is going on here? Like, you guys couldn't last five minutes without totally turning your back on God? And God at first is heated. He's like, okay, I'm done with these people. Like, if they can't even make it 10 minutes when you're up on the mountain, like, what what are we going to do here? And Moses intervenes and says, don't give up on them. And God chooses not to. Now, what's interesting in the story is he, he doesn't say he won't be fulfilling his promise to them, what he makes the commitment towards is to say, I'm going to send them ahead, but I'm going to send them with an angel. I'm not going to go with them because they're a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And Moses says, well, if you don't go with us, what's this whole thing about? And God makes the choice to relent from his judgment against them and to go with them. And when he does, he says these words to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It's his words about himself towards his people. He essentially says, this is my heart. This is the way I'm going to approach my people. With grace and mercy, I'm going to be slow to anger, which I love that phrase. In the original Hebrew, the literal translation of that phrase is, I'm long in the nose. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, when you get mad, what's the first place that turns red? And God says, I'm long in the nose. My nose does not get red quickly. I am not quick-tempered. But I abound in loyal and steadfast love. And so David, as he's remembering and reminding his soul of the character of God, he goes back to this key revelation of God and he says, oh, this is who God is. This is the way God acts towards his people now, despite our failures and our sins and our struggle and our pain and our brokenness. The character of God as our father, when we enter covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his disposition becomes one of grace and mercy, a slowness to anger and an abounding in steadfast love. And then David goes on to kind of meditate on this reality in the verses that follow, to kind of help us see if this is God's character, then this is who he is towards us. And he brings some incredible, incredible truths to the reality of who God is as our father. And as we go through these, I just want to pick these apart a little bit for you. I want you to to contrast it in your mind to maybe your experience of a father, maybe pictures of a father you've seen, maybe whatever it is, help your mind move from that place to say, but who is God as my father? 
How, how does he operate? If you put your faith in Jesus, that's the starting point. That's the way in which God brings us from that place of outside of his family into his family. Now look at the lens through which God approaches you. Because these verses, if you can get them into your soul, are transformative. So look what he says. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast. There's his character. So because of that, he will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. The first thing he reminds himself is, if this is true in the character of God, then his disposition towards his people is not one of constant opposition. That word chide, the original language, the original meaning is the idea of bringing a lawsuit or a legal case. In legal matters, it's somebody who brings the accusation or the lawsuit against someone else. In other matters, it's someone who comes to oppose or contend against someone. And what David essentially reminds himself is because God is gracious and merciful, he's not a God that constantly brings his case against us. He's not constantly bringing his accusation. He's not constantly sitting in his anger at our mistakes in the way that he operates towards us. That's not his disposition. God is not the dad that is simply mad at you all the time because you don't get it right. Right? Some of you grew up with that. Some of you grew up with the father who was like, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And your whole life, you've been trying to prove that you're good enough. Because every time you made one mistake, he was there with the hammer, he was there with the critique, he was there with the thing to say, look, see, screw up again. That's not God. That is not how God operates towards you. He does not look at you in your failure and say, oh, see, there's my screw up kid again. Can't get it right. Yes, God disciplines God does not celebrate our fallenness and sinfulness. The Lord disciplines those he loves, Hebrews 12. But he's not holding that as a stack of cards to say, look, look at my bum kid. He doesn't chide. He doesn't bring that heart. That's not his disposition towards his people. I mean, he goes on to say, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God is not retributive in his actions towards you. He's not stacking up your wrongs so then he has an excuse to hammer you later. Like that's sometimes the image we have of God. Like he's this grumpy guy in the sky just waiting for us to screw up so we can bring the hammer down. And what David's trying to say, no, no, no. If God is gracious and merciful, if he's slow to anger and abounding in love, then the way he operates towards his people is that he doesn't actually repay us for our sins. He doesn't deal with us in a tit-for-tat manner. He doesn't come back with you with the sort of, maybe even what we deserve in the sort of justice. He's a God of grace. One of my favorite stories I think I've seen as, as a father um, that helps me think of this is, uh, is a story I heard several years ago from pastor and author Francis Chan. And he tells a story in one of his messages um, I heard a while back of how he was seeking to continue to develop a heart like the heart of the father and a heart towards grace. And so he tells a story one day of how his daughter came home from school and she brought home some really bad grades. And she was like terrified of the response that she was going to get like from her parents. And she kind of came and was like, I know this is bad. Like I'm ready to receive whatever punishment. And so Francis responded in the moment by taking her out to dinner that night. 
And then afterwards, I think if I remember the story, he like took her to the mall and bought her something. And then they went and got ice cream. And she was like completely flabbergasted. Like she was ready for the hammer. And his whole response was one of celebration. And his whole lesson to her at the end of the night, and, and I think is just a beautiful illustration of the way God's heart's towards us, was to say, God is a God of grace. He responds to our sin and fallenness, not by hammering us, but by lavishing his love. If Jesus paid our penalty, then God is not looking to enact a penalty from you for your sin. Jesus already took that penalty. He just wants to lavish his love upon you as his child. And when you actually get that, it will help you turn from your sin. It will help you realize, why, why would I ever want to respond to a God who would love me that way? But that's what David said. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high, verse 11, as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. That term, head steadfast love, it's the Hebrew word chesed. It's his covenant or loyal love towards his people. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Not only is he not retributive, not only does he not keep a record against us, his love is immense. I mean, David uses here a kind of spatial metaphor, right? How high are the heavens above the earth? Is there some point where you're like, well, they're this high. They're like 5,000 feet or they're 10,000. Like, you have no clue. Like, you go out, you look up, you're like, I don't know, they're high. They seem to be high forever. And that's his whole point. You, you don't get like a measurement. It's like, how much does God love me? Well, he loves me this much. He loves me this much. He loves me this much. No, to recognize God's love is so immense that you actually lose all spatial awareness of how incredible it is. Like, I don't know if you ever get the chance to fly. I love flying. I know some of you who fly all the time for business, you're like, flying's a bum. I still think it's amazing. Every time I get to be on a plane, I'm amazed. But one of the things I love about when you're up in the sky, in the air, is you have no concept of distance. Like, it feels like everything goes on forever. I remember one time I was, had the opportunity to fly with some friends. It was actually when we were living in Ohio, when we were flying to Detroit. This was in college. And, uh, and we were flying in this little Cessna. And they're like, look up. And they look up, and, and there's a Learjet or a passenger came jet flying above us. And I'm like, I kind of started to paint. Like, I couldn't tell if this thing was 100 feet above me or 10,000 feet above me. I have no point of reference. And what David's trying to say is, that's God's love. Like, there's no point of reference to how incredible his love is. There's no point where you're like, I reached the end. I reached the end. There's enough. Oh, it's this much. It's, it's, it's like, he's like, it's like being in the sky. You look all around and you're like, it just seems to be everywhere. It seems like in every part of life and my soul and my heart, I find these parts of God's love and how he loves me. He's like, that's the whole point. How high the heavens are, that's how high God's love is. And not only is his love immense, his grace is astounding. I mean, look at the next verse. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I mean, not only is his love immense, his grace is infinite in its execution. Paul, or David's whole point is here that God not only removes the consequences of our sin, but that he actually removes the sin itself. Thus, that he doesn't see us in our sin. Roy Clements has a really helpful understanding of this. He writes this. The however many miles you think lie between west and east, you cannot look two ways at once. You have to turn your back on one in order to look in the direction of the other. 
When God forgives us, he puts our sin in us on two different horizons. So when he looks at our sin, he is no longer looking at us. And when he looks at us, he is no longer looking at our sin. To use the vocabulary of Paul, he has justified us. Think about that. God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. So that when he sees you, he does not see your sin. That is not how he looks at you. When God looks at you, his back is to your sin. And when he looks at your sin taken by Jesus on the cross, his back is towards you. He does not view you that way. His love and grace is so immense that he sees you in Jesus as holy, righteous, perfect, redeemed. The question is, do you see yourself that way if you're in Jesus? Because if you did... I think that's a real root of where transformation happens. To really receive from God the sort of grace that says, my heavenly father loves me so much, he doesn't see me in my fallenness. He's turned his back to my sin because of Christ will change my whole understanding of my self-identity. And it will change the entire way that I relate to other people in their sin. Because if God would move that way towards me, then how could I not look at others in the same fashion and seek to remove their sin from them where I see them for the human they are and in Christ, what God has done for them. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our sin from us. That's the sort of character that he has. Not only that, he has incredible compassion towards us. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children... So Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. I love this word, compassion. It's it's a really kind of unique understanding in the Hebrew. You got to nerd out with me for one second. In its singular form, the word compassion means womb. The original Hebrew word is translated, would be translated as womb. It's the place where a mother carries her child. In the plural form, then, it's translated as compassion or a deep or kind love that someone has for someone else. And I think there's this beautiful interplay that's designed, Hebrew is a very artistic language, to recognize that the love, the same sort of love that a mother has for a child deep in her womb, that care, that nurturing spirit, God as our Father has that same sort of deep love for us as his people. He has compassion. He he has a bent, a care towards us. I think it's a good reminder here too that fathers can also be compassionate. It's not just moms. Moms, we love your compassion. But sometimes we get this image like mom's the compassionate one, dad's the rough one. That's not a biblical image. The biblical image of a father is also someone who holds deep love, deep care, and deep compassion for their children. And that's how God is bent towards us. That's how he loves you. Why? Well, he says, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God recognizes our frailty and vulnerability. He cares for us in that way. He knows how needy we are. I think one of the things that often breaks my heart the most, or just stirs up such a deep grief and sometimes frustration and anger, is when I read stories about parents who either abuse, harm, injure, or kill their infant kids. 
right? I mean, you, you read some of these stories sometimes, and like it grieves my heart at times. And, and most of us, we feel that. Why? Because we're like, man, we recognize how frail, how vulnerable an infant is. And how could someone lose that sort of control to act towards a child that way? What, what, what David's trying to remind us is God isn't that kind of God. He's not that kind of father. He, he's not losing control. He doesn't look at us and not recognize our frailness, our vulnerability, our fallenness and brokenness. He actually knows that. And the way he responds to that is from this deep place in his gut where he loves us and cares for us. And not only that, not only is his love intense and his compassion intense, his love is eternal. Look at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the, or I'm sorry, verse 15 will start. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenants and remember to do his commandments. I love this verse. Sometimes I think we, we miss it a little bit. His, his whole phrase here is, the steadfast of the Lord is from forever until forever. That's the idea. It's eternal in its nature. We're frail. We're, we're broken, right? We're like the grass. But God's love, his steadfast, foundational, redemptive, gracious love is eternal. It, it is not exhausted. There is not a point where you go, that's where God's grace ends. There's no sin you commit where God says, I can't forgive that. No, his love is from everlasting to everlasting. I mean, this is why Paul, when he prays for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3, he tries to put language around it and he almost can't around God's love. He prays in verse 17 there, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. I hope you can comprehend. Like, it's so big, I don't even know if you can. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Like that's the love, the eternal, intense love God has for those who fear him. That's covenantal language, right? Those are, that's just describing those who have entered into that covenant relationship with God, right? He's not saying this is a love that's earned, right? He talks about obeying the commandments. His point is not to say, look at all the gracious things God has done. Now you better go earn this, what he's reminding us of is we don't earn that, we receive that. We simply receive God's love and grace in Christ Jesus. We don't earn it. We just put our faith in him. That's a receptive act, not an earning act. And then we seek to live in that reality. To fear God is to recognize who God is, recognize who I am apart from him, and then to recognize who I am because of him. That's to fear God. And then to live in accordance with that reality is to practice out his commandments. It's not what earns God's love, it's what experiences God's love. And what he's saying is for those that are in that place who've put their faith in Christ, recognize this overwhelming, gracious, intense, eternal love. Because here's the reality, your heart from the very core of its being is crying out for someone to love you. Your pain, your reality, your struggle, 
for your whole life, you are looking and crying out, who will be there for me? Who will care for me? Who will love me? Despite all the flaws that's been done to me and what I've done. And what David's trying to remind you of, God is. One of my favorite moments, if you ever watch a little kid fall down and hurt himself, is the three seconds right after it happens. Because there's always a pause. If you ever notice, there's always a pause. Watch a little kid. They're running on the floor. They trip. They fall. They scrape their knee. Almost never do they cry immediately, do they? No. What do they do? They look first. And then what happens? They lock eyes with their parent or their figure, their parental figure. And then what happens? Then they cry. Why? because they're asking the question in those 2.5 seconds in their head, am I safe enough to let my mess be dealt with? Does someone love me enough that it's okay in this moment for me to not be okay? And what David's trying to shout at you through 18 verses is God loves you like that. He loves you like that. So much that it's okay for you to not be okay. He's not looking at you saying, get your act together, then I'll love you. Clean it up, figure it out. No, he looks at us in all our mess, in all our brokenness, and he says, my love is so great, it's higher than the highest heavens. My grace is so wide, it removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. And he says, so in that moment where your heart cries out, it says, will someone love me? Will someone care? Will someone see me for who I am? God says, I see you and I love you. I love you. And he invites us then out of our reality to step into the reality of his love. And, and that's what I want to do for us this morning because that's what we all desire and we all need time and again to come back to that place of experiencing the grace and love of God. So this week, I found this bookmark that I think offers us for a moment an invitation this was super random. Maybe not super random. God has a way of working that. I literally opened a book and I found this bookmark in the front. I don't even know where it came from, but it gave me this invitation that I just felt like, man, that's what my heart's looking for. It has a little prayer by Susan Lincoln's on it that simply says this, Almighty God, great and majestic, I know that you encircle the needs of your children with the broad embrace of eternal solution. But Abba, Father, do not leave me in struggling and unstroked upon this earth. If grace has a lap, find me and hold me there till all my cries and longings snuggle at last into the arms of peace. Brothers and sisters, grace does have a lap. And God showed us that grace in Jesus Christ by dying on our behalf and rising again. And every time we find ourselves in that place of pain and struggle, God invites you to come into the lap of grace and love and re-experience his immense, eternal, gracious love for you. And so this morning, I just want to give you a moment to experience that. Because I think that's what God wants to do even in our hearts today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just invite you for a moment, for a minute, to close your eyes just right where you're at, not weird, just to give you a personal moment with God. And I would invite you to, to use that image. Some of you might be resistant to that image, like, oh, I'm not gonna be some child crawling on God's lap. Remember, it's little children that inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
It's those of us that can actually step into the grace of God and receive what he longs to show us. So don't be scared of that. You're not too tough for it. And I just invite you to be reminded of God's love over whatever you brought into the room this morning. So I'm going to read these verses for you, okay? Just read a few of these verses over. And I want you to let them just wash over. Let God's wash o- word wash over you as an act of love. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're, we're going to respond in worship. So God, even as I prepare to read, would you just, by your Holy Spirit, bring the weight of your love and grace upon this place. Let it fall upon our hearts, even right now. May we feel it deep within our soul. For the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So God, we thank you this morning for the father that you are, a God of love and grace. And I pray, I pray you would continue to bring the weight of your fatherhood upon our souls, that we would continue to experience more and more that transformation that you long to bring in our lives. Even now, as we prepare to sing, would this response just be a celebration of your mercy and love, to praise you, as David says, to bless you from our very beings for your fatherly actions and your fatherly character towards us. We love you, God, and we're so grateful for who you are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.